Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, and joining me today is Dr. Garrett Jones. He's an associate professor of economics and BBNT professor for the study of capitalism at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University in the US. His research interests include macroeconomics, monetary economics, and the micro foundations of economic growth. His work has appeared in journals such as the Journal of Monetary Economics, the Journal of Economic Growth, and Critical Review. His first book, published in 2015 by Stanford University Press, is titled I've Mind How Your Nation's IQ Matters So Much, so much More Than Your Own. And you can watch it there. Dr. Jones is showing it to the camera. Okay, so Dr. Jones, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, great. It's my, it's my pleasure. Okay, so the first question I would like to ask you, and by the way, the focus of our conversation is going to be your book, the book you just showed to the camera, Hive Mind. So, uh, I've already had people like Dr. James Flynn on the show, and we already went through the basics of IQ and general intelligence, so I think there's no need to do that today again. I will just refer to, uh, to that a particular to that sure. particular interview for the audience to go check it out. I will leave that also in the description box of this video. But uh, so I would like to ask you, uh, you argue that national IQ has a much stronger effect on the quality of life of individuals of a given country than their own individual IQ. So what is the basic argument for that? Well, my basic argument, it combines uh, a standard finding from labor economics, which is that if you're trying to guess somebody's uh, how much money somebody earns, somebody's wages, for instance, um, it turns out that knowing somebody's IQ actually is a, um, a very good predictor by the standards of labor economics. The problem is, is that nothing's a really good predictor of how much somebody earns, but in a way, um, your individual IQ is sort of the cleanest, dirty shirt. It's the best of a bunch of weak predictors of your own wages. So at the individual level, um, a lot of looking at a lot of estimates, you could say that one more IQ point predicts about 1% higher wages. Or going from being the average person to being at about, say, the 80th percentile would predict about a 15, 18% increase in your wages. Some people would say my number is a little too big. Some people say it's too small, but I think that's a good central summary. Um, but when I look across countries, it turns out that national average IQ has a much stronger and even more robust relationship with national income per person, national productivity per person. My estimate from my first paper with uh, Joel Schneider, the psychologist, um, showed that one IQ point predicts 6% higher income per person in the long run. And we run a bunch of fancy statistical tests and find that that's, that's a pretty good estimate. So it looks like um, the relationship between IQ is about six times higher at the national level than at the individual level. Or your, as I put it in the subtitle, your nation's IQ matters so much more than your own. So that's the fact. The question is, why is this true? So the fact that it's true is something that I take care of in the introduction to the book, uh, which is free online at Stanford's website, Stanford University Press's website. Um, 
The rest of the book is about why it's true. So I'm trying to resolve what I call the paradox of IQ. You know, a lot of people who love intelligence research, who love uh, understanding individual differences, they get very excited about IQ. And when I point out, hey, your IQ is not great a predictor of your wages, they figure I'm hiding the ball or something. But this is a totally normal psychology finding. The puzzle is, how can something that appears to matter a small to medium amount for you as an individual can matter a massive amount for your nation? Mm -hmm. Right. So at the collective level, would you say that in a succinct way, it would be a fair assessment to say that uh, national IQ contributes to a much higher probability of uh, that or, or people that live in that nation living in an environment that allows for uh, social trust, stability, economic growth and prosperity, and that brings more and better opportunities for everyone. That sounds like a fair assessment of my story, which is that um, smarter groups build things that are fantastic. Um, they can be high trust organizations, they can be reasonably low corruption bureaucracies, they can be banking systems that are good at taking money from people who have it to people who can use it wisely. And those help everyone who lives there, whether you're smarter than average or less smart than average. So by and large, those of us who live in rich countries are reaping benefits of organizations that none of us as individuals created, right? So the question is, what are some of the key ingredients in building these organizations, whether they're governments or banks, legal systems? And I think a key ingredient in that institutional quality recipe is something psychologists discover. It's the power of human intelligence. Mm -hmm. Okay, so at an individual level, we can't really say that uh, the IQ, the individual IQ of a particular person is, uh, is as good a predictor of life outcomes as national IQ because at an individual level there are also other variables that we have to take into account like, for example, conscientiousness, agreeableness, and so on, right? And preferences too. I mean, some people just prefer to work interesting jobs even if they aren't very productive. Some people prefer who aren't, some people who don't have a lot of skills just say, I'm going to work really hard and take on this task that I'm kind of not, not a great fit for because it's my personal passion. So individual preferences um, have a big effect on what we earn in our lives. And the mixture of personal preferences, idiosyncratic skills, um, that together they probably explain most of why a person earns what he or she does. And IQ is important, but then Part of the reason it's important is because um, well-functioning, well-organized brains really are important on the job. And part of the reason it's important is perhaps because it's just, it's the thing that we're best at measuring. Um, psychologists do have this idea that, um, you know, conscientiousness, for instance, has a reputation as being not quite as important as IQ, but, um, but still important, right? Whether you show up on time, whether you follow your um, tasks that you've started. Uh, whether you have what my dad called stick to itiveness. And some people think, well, that's maybe, that seems really important. And why doesn't, why don't the statistics tell us it's more important? The answer may be, one answer is that it could be that it's just not as important as we think. Another possibility is we don't have a great way of measuring. So with IQ, we have a century of measurement behind us. So we shouldn't turn down um, 
a psychological trait that can be really important in social settings. Um, when it's and part of the reason we should use it is because people have kicked the tires on this thing for a hundred years. There are very few concepts we have in economics that have been kicked around that long. Gross domestic product GDP, the statistic that gets measured in the news and reported in the news all the time. We've had that for about 80 years. It's getting pretty good, but it doesn't have the heritage of IQ and it's not as robust. Mm -hmm. Okay, so on the side of people that are not on the high end of IQ, let's say, people that are not that intelligent. Um, so if they live in a country which has a high national IQ, uh, they still get the chance to uh, in to perform certain jobs or, or have certain occupations where a high level of, in of intelligence is not really necessary to correctly perform them. But if they are uh, conscientious and if they work hard, they still get the opportunity to have a well-paid job, a job uh, and also with perhaps social, other social benefits. Uh, and they still get the opportunity to properly contribute to the economy of that given country and uh, live a good life, right? So what you're saying there sounds similar to the O-ring foolproof model that I discuss in For the End of Hive Model, which uh, my, my point there is that there's some kinds of jobs where everything has to be done right for the device or the service to work well. So for instance, a smartphone has to Every part of it from front to back has to be working essentially perfectly. So if anybody makes a mistake in the production process, the smartphone is just another piece of metal and glass in my room. Um, some jobs in the, in the modern world, though, you can just throw a lot of people at it, and it'll, it'll eventually get done. You can throw a lot of person hours at it, high quality or low quality. And if you throw enough human attention to it, regardless of the skill level, it'll eventually get done. That might be things like lawn mowing. It might be things like routine legal documents, routine divorces. Uh, it can be a lot of different things. Um, so some jobs are o what I call O-ring, drawing on Harvard's Michael Creamer, who said that a, a lot of things in the modern economy are like the space shuttle, where if one, there's one small mistake in a space launch, like the O-ring that failed in, with the shuttle Challenger, that one failing means the entire spaceship blows up. One small mistake ruins everything. That's one part of the economy. There are other jobs in the economy that are what I call foolproof, where if people mess up, you just throw another person at it. You can throw some more people at it. Just enough person hours and the job will eventually get done. So some jobs are O-ring and some jobs are foolproof. And what I argue in the book is that a lot of jobs in modern economies are foolproof type jobs. And those are the kind of jobs where people who are a little bit lower skilled can definitely contribute to society. They're not um, leeches or parasites in any way. They can go, maybe it's, a, maybe it's working at McDonald's, maybe it's being a lawyer doing routine jobs, uh, maybe it's being an engineer working on routine tasks. You don't literally have to be at the cutting edge um, of human knowledge in order to be able to be part of the team. So this is part of my optimistic story that um, that's not what all of the book offers, but this important part is really optimistic, which is that um, Higher skilled people, higher IQ people can be part of the economic frontier and lower skilled people, um, lower IQ people can be taking on tasks that are a little bit behind the frontier. Maybe they're old fashioned. Maybe they're things that have been done for 50, 60 years and they've been turned into a routine. And I think 
knowing that there are both kinds of jobs means it's an argument against a certain kind of uh, what my colleague Brian Kaplan calls high IQ misanthropy. Um, lower IQ people can do something. A lot of people keep telling me, people have been telling me for decades that tech is going to put low IQ people out of work, computers are going to do it. Um, these prophecies have failed to occur. And I think people should look for an explanation for why these prophecies have failed. My, my um, foolproof model is an explanation for that. Mm -hmm. Okay, exactly. That's very interesting. And another thing that I would like to ask you about, because I think it is very interesting. Uh, so in my interview with Dr. James Flynn, we already talked about the standard IQ tests, the Wexler and the Raven progression matrices. So th these are the standards. But in your book, you also refer to other types of tests that don't directly evaluate IQ, uh, like, for example, the PISA program for international student assessment, the TRMMS trends in mathematics and science study, and the PEARLS progress in international reading literacy study. So uh, do these also correlate well with measures of IQ? And what do they add to the picture? Well, at the individual level, I mean, any parent of children um, can tell you that uh, IQ scores correlate reasonably well with things like the SAT or the standardized other standardized tests that children take in school. Um, but what Heiner Rinderman, a psychologist in Germany, has shown is that in cross-country databases, um, when you compare the, these national average IQ estimates, which are sometimes criticized, sometimes used, and you compare them against the scores you just measured, the PISA, the TIMS, the PEARLS, which are these standardized international assessments. The correlation is typically right around 0 0.9 on a 0 to 1 scale, which is nearly a perfect relationship. So countries that do very well on um, these IQ tests tend to be countries that do very well on other standardized tests. And countries yeah, that and just to interrupt yeah. you there, uh, that that zero point point nine correlation, it's very rare that in the social sciences we obtain such a high correlation, right? That's true. Now I can say that across countries, high correlations are less of a surprise. Um, there's sort of a, I guess you could say, an international G factor when it comes to everything. Countries that are countries that are rich tend to have a lot of great things going for them. They tend to have low infant mortality, high years of education, um, indoor plumbing everywhere. So these things, and poor countries tend to have very little of those things on average, right? So cross countries, a lot of things correlate really strongly, much more than they do, say, within Britain, within France, within the U.S. Cross country correlations tend to get kind of high. It's, it's part of the reason why it's hard to tell which is cause, which is effect. Everything's correlated. Uh, one of my colleagues says that... Um, one could, you know, um, one could notice the fact that rich people have chandeliers more often than poor people and conclude from that, well, therefore, we should have a government program that gives poor people chandeliers. Um, and surely it's a correlation, but we need to go deeper to find out where the causation comes from. And that's really what most of my book is about. Why is it that what's what are good, sound reasons for believing that people who do better on these standardized tests have mental skills that will make them better? at creating a modern economy. Mm -hmm. Yes, and another sort of mental skills that people who possess higher IQs also tend to have are skills that are related to 
emotion and social behavior, right? So IQ usually also correlates very highly with EQ, that is emotional quotient, right? Yeah, it might be in the 0.3 to 0.5 range. Usually those correlations go between IQ and EQ or emotional intelligence or social intelligence. Um, but the amazing thing is, is that if you're trying to, um, some people think that EQ or social intelligence is a better per predictor of work performance than IQ. And you'll see people brought these ideas around. Um, it turns out this idea has been tested a lot in the human resources literature. People in human resources, people in industrial psychology, they're not afraid of IQ tests. Um, they use them routinely. Um, and they're widely studied. And it turns out if you're trying to predict how good an employee is and they have a choice between using either an IQ test or an EQ, emotional intelligence test, there's no competition at all. You should use the IQ test. The IQ test is the better real-world predictor. Um, it turns out that um, uh, there's some debate about how this is uh, what to, whether this is exactly true, but to a first approximation, an EQ test, for the purpose of predicting worker performance, an EQ test is just a mediocre IQ test. So you're better off using the IQ test. Um, but, it, but for me, this is uh, the gateway to much of the rest of my book. I discussed this IQ versus EQ thing in Chapter 1, which is also free online at Stanford's site. Um, uh, but that's the, that opens the gate to the idea that if intelligence is a measure of social intelligence, if, if IQ is a measure of emotional intelligence, um, and if, if emotional and social intelligence is a big part of how we build the world around us, then that's one great reason to study IQ because it's a predictor and indeed indirectly in an important way a cause of these great social outcomes we really care about. I put a lot of the emphasis in the book on the link between intelligence and cooperation. Smarter groups appear to be more cooperative. They're better at coming to win-win outcomes and uh, some negotiation type games. And this is important for societies as a whole because a whole lot of social um, interactions with people uh, turns on the question. Are you and I going to have a win-win interaction where we both get something out of this? Or is this going to be a win-lose interaction where I win at your expense? If we can have a lot of win-win interactions, then every time we interact, we're making society just a little bit better off. And it looks like, on average, high IQ teams, high IQ pairs of players are more likely to have win-win outcomes. And that means the pie grows. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, okay, so we've been talking about, since the very beginning of this conversation, about the differences in IQ means between uh, different nations, that is, different collective groups of people that compose nations. And so we know, for example, that a particular human population that tends to have the highest IQs are Ashkenazi Jews, and East Asians also have very high IQs in general. Uh, and uh, the people that tend to be classified at the lower ends of IQ in terms of mean are the sub-Saharan sub Africans. But uh, these, difference are, these, these differences are not all explained by genetics alone, right? I would say that um, to a, we should start with the idea that we don't know at all whether it's caused by genetics at all. So I think it's... Uh, the 21st century may be the time when we actually have a serious accounting 
of what are the causes of human group differences. And I think the first place to start is with a very, what um, Bayesians might call um, a week prior, an open, an open book um, on this issue. We should just be open to whatever the data tells us in the coming decades. But uh, this, is a lot, this is a lot like what uh, Charles Murray says. We have no direct evidence on group differences. We have, some we have a bunch of indirect evidence. That's a paraphrase of something he said a long time ago. So, um, but to me, as, as, as I say in the introduction of my book, my book isn't about what causes IQ, it's about what IQ causes. And as long as these differences are substantive, are real, and not just test mistakes or test bias, um, it doesn't matter to me whether these differences are caused by education or genetics or public health innovations or different parenting styles. What matters is that people who do better on these tests have a wide variety of skills that are, uh, that are valuable for society as a whole. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, as you said, your book is about what IQ causes, and let's go back to that uh, and now talk a little bit more directly about politics. So, uh, another thing that is very correlated, I think, with nations that have low IQs uh, is that uh, they also tend to have to be more socially and politically unstable. So the effects that uh, the collective accumulation, let's say, of low IQ in individuals uh, might have also have an effect at the political level in these aspects, for example. It does seem, so this is sort of where the middle of my book is, it's about really this idea that uh, differences in group intelligence are likely to have effects on institutional quality. And the first channel I put a lot of weight on is this idea that smarter groups are more cooperative. And the flip side of that is that uh, less intelligent groups on average appear less cooperative. And cooperation is a big part of politics. Um, uh, having political parties that take turns rather than saying, well, I'm in power and I'm going to fight to keep it forever. That's actual turn taking is actually a form of cooperation. Um, another thing that I start on er, start early on in the book is I go with a bunch, I report a bunch of mainstream evidence from psych and econ showing that smarter individuals are more patient. They tend to see the future. The future to them is something real, more real and less of a theory. So people and who are they also, have, they also have a greater ability to delay gratification. Delay gratification, yeah. This this shows up in a lot of different studies. And economists have endless numbers of models, and political scientists also have endless numbers of theoretical models, where there's this little letter of the alphabet. We usually call it beta. And beta is this measure of how impatient you are, or how patient you are, literally. If your beta is bigger in the model, you're more patient, and in most games and most models, that means you're more likely to get good outcomes. If your beta is smaller and the people in your game are less patient, then people are trying to stab each other in the back because it's better to stab first than to get stabbed five seconds later. Um, so a longer, a larger beta means in most games, you're, like, you're more likely to get these awesome outcomes. And so... There's two, I mean, I have, one of my chapters is titled this, Patience and Cooperation as Ingredients to Good Politics. And microeconomics and experimental psychology both show that uh, smarter groups are likely to be more patient. They're also likely to be more cooperative. So they're more likely to have good politics. 
I, a third factor, which builds on my colleague Brian Kaplan's research, um, is that uh, higher IQ individuals are just more likely to be supportive of markets. They're more likely to be, in some way, what we call social liberals um, or Adam Smith liberals. Uh, they're more likely to be open to new experiences, open to other cultures. They're less likely to be racist. So high IQ people are both more likely, as far as we can tell, uh, they're more likely to support market-oriented policies, and they're less likely to support um, discriminatory, um, emotionally motivated racist policies. So it's, uh, it's a win for Adam Smith-style liberalism, at least on average. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think that uh, another topic or another point that is very important for people to understand about uh, why if a particular nation has a, high, a higher average IQ, it usually translates into uh, a better political system because uh, the vast majority of the people that compose the political parties and the political system uh, are part usually of the majority of the people that compose that country so they they get they come from the same pool of people they, that get their iq assessed in that particular country correct yeah i, I sort of I, I here i'm drawing i i discussed this in the book and i'm drawing on a, a nice paper by another paper by heiner rindemann who's who has his own book called Cognitive Capitalism. That's sort of a, uh, if you think my book is too short, then um, Heiner has a book that's about uh, two and a half times bigger. So, and I can I can recommend that for um, uh, future reference to those who want more depth on these issues. Um, he looks at this and he just, uh, you know, um, he actually finds that in terms of just raw education levels, if I recall the details correctly, um, you know, people in higher IQ countries are more likely to have politicians with higher levels of education. Now, that's just a general general rule, um, but just your intuition would tell you that if you're drawing, suppose, suppose you know, uh, your average politician is just a little smarter than the average person in your country. Well, in a country where scores are really high, a person who's a little bit better than that average is going to be better than someone in a country where scores tend to be low. A little bit above average in that country is going to be down here. So... If people, if your politicians tend to be at, say, the 80th percentile in your country's ranking, 80th percentile in a low distribution is going to be worse than 80th percentile in a high distribution. So politicians don't exactly get selected at random, I don't think, in any country. But um, it's, you know, it's, it's good to be it's good to be mining where there's a lot of gold. Mm hmm. Exactly. Uh, and so th that is in terms of politicians, but also in terms of the voters, because uh, voters who have higher IQs, we already talked a little bit about the benefits, the social, intellectual and emotional benefits of having higher IQs, like the ability, a greater ability to delay gratification and things like that. But what are the other ways in which um, voters with higher IQs also contribute to electing politicians that then lead their country to better outcomes. You know, I mentioned Kaplan stuff before where Kaplan and Miller show that in a paper that higher IQ people are just more likely to agree with economists on a bunch of issues. Uh, but, you know, part of politics is just remembering facts and 
part of being an informed voter is not having these abstract theories about social tolerance or the glories of markets. Um, it's about just remembering, has the economy been a lot better than usual the last three years or has it been a lot worse than usual? And is my politician the one who was corrupt or was that his brother who was corrupt? These sort of, can you keep track of the facts things? Um, that has to be really important. Um, some experiments that don't actually look at IQ at all show that something as simple as having regular radio reports about whether your politicians are up to shenanigans is good is a good way for voters to kick the crooks out. You know, if you're hearing on the if you're hearing on the local radio that the local politicians are crooks, then you kick the crooks out. If there's no local radio around, you're just kind of going on rumors. Um, so real some some form of information is helpful. And if there's one thing that IQ scores are really good predictors of, it's whether you can remember information. And um, I can't say I have any nation-level tests of this. I'm building this on the fact that there are other studies showing that accurate information is a valuable way of disciplining your government. If the voters know what's going on, they're more likely to kick the bums out and retain the people who are less corrupt. I'm building this on that, plus the fact that we know from a century of IQ research, high IQ people do better on like trivia tests and they're better at just remembering facts for a long period of time. They have something, a greater amount of what's known as working memory. They can juggle multiple facts in their head at once. And these all have to be useful at the national level for keeping an informed electorate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and so I guess that in the second part of this interview, it is very important for us to get into another topic that you also address in your book and that nowadays particularly is very contentious, that is immigration. So um, in what ways do we have to look into these data regarding uh, national level IQs? Uh, to analyze what are the consequences that uh, low performance, let's say, immigrants can have on the economy? C can they really, for example, contribute to the lowering of wages in low-skill occupations, like, for example, people from the, the far right and the alt-right are now arguing about? Yeah, the, this, this idea just does not match the facts in any place it's been tested at all seriously. I have to say, you know, um, people get an idea from Economics 101 from, their fr from a freshman econ class or a high school econ class that if the supply of labor, if the supply of workers increases, that pushes down wages. Everybody knows that if there's a bigger supply, that pushes down the price. So a lot of people just take it for granted. Well, that means that more immigrants are going to uh, greater population in any, from any source is going to push down my wages. Um, the thing is, is that that actually is just Econ 101. Um, economists in general um, tend to find both, in theory, we remind people that when you get a lot of workers, those workers are actually going to produce more capital, more machines, and they're making their bosses' machines more productive. And when they're making their bosses' machines more productive, some mixture of the workers and the bosses are going to have more money to save and invest, and that ends up building more machines. And when you have more machines around, you want more workers to work on those machines. This is a simple version of the solo growth model, Robert Solo's Nobel Prize winning idea. So that's in theory. You just have to remember first, workers do more, that they're more than just supply. 
they indirectly help create more demand for workers, not through the Keynesian stuff of like, oh, they'll buy stuff at the store, but through the supply side channel. They indirectly build more machines, more equipment, more factories, and then you want more workers to work on those factories or office buildings. Um, so that's, that's the theory. Then there's the practice. So here there's been study after study. Uh, I, I like Giovanni Perry's stuff. He's at UC Davis, I believe, still. And um, I discuss his work. I discuss some other work on, on this in the book. And when people look rigorously, say, at the U.S., which is heavily studied, it looks like the basic, the Robert Solo version of the world um, is pretty much the story that's true. It looks like extra workers um, don't push down wages. It turns out that to some extent, um, new workers who come in usually have different skill sets than the workers who were there before. And so they can actually be sort of complements more than substitutes, even in the short run. I don't even need to, I don't even need to put much weight on that, right? Like, so it could be that the immigrants raise a lot of people's wages, right? That's the simple story. Um, that, that's probably, there's probably something to that. But the mere fact that there, there's no evidence for this sort of, Econ 101 story. Let me see if I can do this right. Am I doing that right? Increase in supply pushing down the wage. I don't know how your camera's going to flip this around. Increase in supply pushing down the wage is very Econ 101. It looks like reality is more like this. Increasing the supply of workers means the rest of our wages really don't change very much. Um, so that's the basic economics of it. So I, I, um, I think there's a lot to that. And I think that's the starting point for the economics. But most of my book is about the politics. It's about the idea that people with different skill levels um, will change the political system. And there, uh, I think you have a better case. That's if one is going to make a critique that mass low-skilled immigration is going to um, push down wages, uh, it's not going to be through normal through supply and demand. It's going to be through institutional changes in the long run. I tend to think those are a bigger. That's a more likely to happen. In democracies than autocracies, for instance, more democratic nations are, are more likely to have that problem. It is more of a long-run problem, though, and um, some people don't want to put that much weight on the long run. Well, if that happens 10 or 20 years from now, maybe 10 or 20 years from now, we'll have much better education systems that will raise their skill levels. Um, my colleague Brian Kaplan points out that a lot of migrants and their descendants don't vote very much anyway. Um, so there's some reasons to think, well, it might not this might not be 100%. This effect might be small, and it might be 20, 30 years from now. Um, I think that's a reasonable um, that's a reasonable story for a person to keep in mind. Um, look at the countries where low-skilled immigration seems to actually be an obvious win without creating the kind of social conflict we've seen in the U.S. and Europe lately. And I would point to the in these cases to Singapore and to some of the Gulf states. Um, by nobody's measure are these countries full democracies. Singapore has reasonably fair elections, but there's 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 some real restrictions on political competition there. Um, the guest workers there are certainly not going to become citizens anytime soon. There are strict rules that m make that very unlikely to happen. The Gulf states are generally autocracies to greater or lesser degrees. Those are places where low-skilled immigration is obviously helping just about everyone who's currently there in the economy. You don't hear a lot of people complaining about how the workers are taking their jobs. Um, that is getting you that I think those countries are actually really good evidence 
against the sort of worker glut theories of immigration that are popular on the uh, the, the alt-right and among uh, European national populist parties, as they're sometimes called. Um, but the, the institutional channel, we're thinking about. Um, and it is a longer-run problem. It's not an immediate problem, but it's one that voters in democracy should think about. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question in general. How do we make sure that our political system has people who are have the cognitive skills to uh, contribute to the system, whether that's as voters or as politicians. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I guess we have a very complicated set of variables that we have to analyze in order to properly evaluate the value of immigration, right? And I, I think... But I, I can't sum it up, though. I think the short version is democracy versus autocracy. In auto autocratic states, basic economic optimism libertarian free market optimism probably works quite well um, in democracies further research is needed okay so another thing that i think it's very important to put on the table when we're talking nowadays about immigration uh, and since you're an economist i think it would be important for us to talk about this even though as far as i can recall it it is not directly in your book that is uh, don't you think that because over time fertility rates, particularly in the West, have been declining more and more, uh, that uh, immigration can also have a net positive when it comes to help us have a sustainable social security system in the long run? Uh, so I think that's a good question. Is the uh, is the low fertility in the West and, and also in Japan uh, and East Asia as well? Yes. Um, is this a is this a social problem for which immigration is a really great solution? Um, first of all, the question is it a social problem? Um, I mean, if governments have overpromised their workers, um, if they've overpromised great retirement packages, if they've overpromised great health care for aging and non-working population, well, then yes, there's a social problem there. I should point out, though, the, um, that, again, here, uh, Robert Solo's economic growth model reminds us that, um, and I'm going to be teaching this to my students next week in a, a junior-level class, that in the Solo growth model, he reminds us that when there's fast population growth, um, every year you have new workers who are having to share the machines created by last year's workers. So if your population's growing, say, 5% a year to pick a very high number, that means that every year new workers show up, you've got 105 workers who are sharing the same machines that a year ago 100 workers were using. And so that's known as capital dilution. So, you know, I'm old enough to remember when population growth was the problem. Um, economists were never that much on board with the idea that population growth was a problem, but the simple idea that when a lot more workers are showing up, you're having to share the machines with all the new people. And if there are a lot, the flip side of that is, is if there are a lot fewer people showing up, if population growth is negative, then that means you get to share, um, a smaller number of workers get to share the old machines. This is most obvious with housing, for instance. Suppose American population falls from its current levels and drifts down to about 200 million people over the next 50 or 60 years. Suppose that happens. I mean, that's going to be great for me as a future homeowner, right? Or for my descendants as future homeowners. I mean, there's going to be all these homes that were built a long time ago, capital, 
and fewer people to live in them. Now that sounds like prosperity to me. So, and what's going on there with the kind of capital we call housing is going on with the rest of the economy. So I have my doubts in principle, just, just based on looking at all these houses that you know, wouldn't it be nice if there were only one person a house rather than five or six? Population growth, I think, population declining is a little underrated. Um, that said, there is this fiscal issue, right? And a lot of countries have overpromised their welfare states and they're looking for people to come in. There, the crucial element is you have to bring in folks who are going to contribute more than they take out, right? You have to bring in people who are going to produce more taxes for a long time um, than they're taking back in services. Now, that's not too hard to do. In the U.S., we had a recent National Academy of National Academy studies, the National Academy of Sciences and a couple others worked together on this to see like our recent immigrants, the recent waves of immigrants in the U.S. adding more than they take away. Um, I will get the details a little off, but the basic idea is the first generation does eat more than it contributes, but then the second generation on is contributing more than it eats. And this is for, you know, um, a, a group that's dominated by uh, Mexican-Americans who are often denigrated as like uh, in the popular press is taking a lot of services, right? So there, in the supposed worst-case scenario or bad scenario, there it works out in the long run. But that said, um, it's something that countries have to worry about. I mean, I, I personally wonder, I've never seen a similar study for European welfare states. We know that European welfare states are more generous than, Amer than the American welfare state. That suggests greater costs to lower-skill immigration compared to America. But on the flip side, Europeans have this these broad value-added taxes that are really hard for anybody to avoid. And so that means you've got more revenues coming in from migrants if, if they are lower skilled. So they're, bringing, they're paying in more in revenue, but they're taking out more. Um, it's, it just seems as though if a country were really dedicated to using immigration policy to fix long-run fiscal problems, they would choose a very targeted fiscal policy focused on people who are pretty highly skilled, where you get a lot of the benefits and very few of the costs up front. Um, and a targeted immigration, you know, a targeted immigration policy that was weighted at improving the fiscal health of these states would look a lot different from what most nations have. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so that being said, I have one last question for you. That is, could you please walk, walk us through some of the main um, solutions that you propose by the end of your book about how we could try to uh, raise nation, national IQs in the least resourceful countries, let's say? And by the way, what... Are, what is the importance of the Flynn effect in this case? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm uh, fortunate. I have an entire chapter of the book on the Flynn effect, um, and I was kind. And uh, Jim Flynn himself was kind enough to uh, blurb the book as well. So um, I'm very lucky. I've, I've been able to meet him twice. He's a fantastic man, a, a, a gentleman scholar, and a model for us all. Um, so the, the Flynn effect is, as you know, and you read it, your audience knows, um, the long-term rise in IQs across countries. Um, we still don't know how much of it is real, real brain power, and how much of it is sort of a kind of uh, people are just getting better at taking tests. But the poorest countries have such low scores, and those scores have risen 
um, over the last few decades. And it just seems obvious to, I think, everyone working in the field that with reasonable public health interventions, um, including early childhood nutrition, prenatal nutrition, um, one should be able to raise these scores by quite a bit, by a noticeable amount. And I'm personally a fan of the idea that K through six education, um, kindergarten through sixth grade is also substantively raising people's actual intelligence that they use their whole life. I have more doubts about stuff after sixth grade, but um, my fellow economists uh, do a lot of research on schooling quality in sub-Saharan Africa. There are a lot of well-done, well-designed well well uh, studies there. And in many countries, not all, but the level of learning going on is so low and um, that this is not because the students are unable to learn these things. It's because of things like the teachers sold the books. I mean, just imagine, we, you, you, many people know how much school textbooks sell for, right? I mean, you, in many poor countries, a teacher who sells the textbooks will earn more than her entire annual salary, right? It's a temptation that many people cannot resist. That's one concrete example of just how poor the schooling quality is in many of the world's poorest performing countries. So a mixture of uh, prenatal nutrition, early childhood nutrition, environmental cleanup so that children aren't breathing smoke from coal burning in their homes, um, and adequate K through six education. These seem to be things that are non-utopian. They are, they are doable for many, many poor countries. Um, we're seeing a version of this even in, in China, where a lot of people, a lot of your audience might not think as a place that could use it. But of course, China, outside of the coastal area, depending on which side this is showing on, um, outside of coastal China, um, the inland has a lot of very important health and nutrition problems, environmental exposure problems. This appears to show up on IQ tests, as far as we can tell. So um, public health interventions matter in all of the poor countries, not just sub-Saharan Africa, India, China, the rest of South Asia, parts of East Asia, these can, all countries can all get, gain a lot, as well as the more impoverished portions of Latin, of Latin America. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Jones, just before we finish this, would you like perhaps to share with people something you're working on at the moment that you think it might be interesting for people to know about and also where people can find and follow your work on the internet? Sure, sure. Uh, my next book, which is under contract right now with Stanford University Press, is going to be called 10% Less Democracy. And there I'm going to argue that for the rich countries, democracy is just a little bit overrated. We just have a little bit too much. Uh, that uh, that uh, central bank independent agencies are often better than having legislators make big decisions, that longer terms for politicians are better than the two-year terms we have in the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, and that um, if, if we can find socially acceptable ways to give a little bit more weight to more informed voters, these three big reforms, longer terms, more independent agencies, and slightly better informed voters would have big payoffs. And we would still have democracy, but we would also have richer democracies. Um, I'm easy to find on Twitter um, and on social media in general. Uh, the key is you have to spell my first name correctly. Uh, my name is G-A-R-E-T-T, -T, Garrett Jones, with one R and two T's. If you go with two R's and two T's, you will find the baseball player um, who used to be with the New York Yankees. He's a 
great guy, but uh, he's not me. And uh, so Garrett Jones, one R, two T's, I'm easy to Google and easy to find. Okay, so very well, excellent. Uh, I will leave all of that in the description box to this video for people to go and check it out. Uh, by the way, I read your book, I've Mind, and I really loved it. So I recommend. Thanks very much. I recommend to all the viewers. It is very interesting, and please go and check it out because the conversation we've just had doesn't cover perhaps not even 10% of the book. So please go check it out. And so, Dr. Jones, I think it was a really fun and informative interview. And I don't know, perhaps in the future, we could have another one when your new book is out. Thanks very much. I'd like that. Thanks very much for having me. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.